Hello, this is Melissa, and it is the 7th of January, 2024. And I'm wishing you all the best in the new year. I hope that you had, if you had a break, that it was good, peaceful, reflecting time. Mine was a mixed bag, but I did have a lot of time to reflect in there. And I'm not a huge one on resolutions, but I I do find myself entering this new year charged up a little bit, new ideas, and just had time to restore my fortitude, I guess you could say. So I'm going to be super brief right now because at the end of this talk, I'm going to attach a conversation that I had this morning with Darren from South Africa because he and I have an idea going into the new year and we want to invite a bit of participation on this and so uh, stay tuned for a little conversation between the two of us. This redux that I'm putting up is from January 5, 2020. And I think that you will find it to be an interesting talk. I may trim it just a little bit. I like sometimes to get rid of the really, really topical things and keep it focused on the over, you know, kind of the big picture talk. And also, since I have been making videos of these, it's really, it just becomes quite a a project to illustrate an hour and a half or more talk. I was happy to hear from some people over the holidays that I had played an old Christmas talk of Alan's, but I kept mentioning an even earlier one, and some of you went back and listened to that. So that's good. And I will say that you're all welcome to go back and listen to this talk in its entirety, but I won't be cutting too, too much because I am going to stop talking really, really soon here. But the title of this blurb from January 5, 2020 is Moral High Ground for Dummies. Embargo and starve nations, hoping they'll fight back. They respond, they're bombed. They caused you to attack. (laughs) It's just, you know, always so amazing to me how prescient Alan was, and, and that's just this incredible understanding of the agenda that he could call it and always return to the big picture. And I'm going to try to do that this year with as much tenacity as I can to just hold on to what I think is most, most important. I was speaking with Johnny at Dynamic Independence the other day, and we spoke a bit about foundations, and I talked about the updates to the WHO Treaty and the effects that that will have on the way that your country approaches health crises. And I think that that is an important thing to focus on. I think that what is happening in the Middle East 
is important to keep an eye on. And when you listen to this talk from 2020, as when you listen to Alan talk in 2012 or 2006, it doesn't matter. There was always something going on in the Middle East. And I think that that's why that poem is a good one. It, it kind of captures it. There's always the propaganda that tells you that they've got the moral high ground. I mean, I saw some of the basest, crudest propaganda about um, what we are told was the sexualization of terror, Hamas towards their Israeli captives. And I, I, I don't know what happened, but all I know is that this piece, there were, there were pieces like this from many, many, many mainstream papers. I happened to be looking at one from the New York Times, and it was just graphic, graphic detail of the uh, particular parts of the anatomy that were abused and what it was like and what the victims felt. And they had these pictures that had, um, not that I wanted to see a picture of this kind of abuse, but the pictures were of nothing related to the story, a bombed out building, people walking down a street, uh, you know, just war footage, just war coverage. To me, that was the equivalent of babies being tossed from incubators. That That's how low they sank with that bit of propaganda. So I am disgusted by the last time I checked, which was several days ago, there were 22,000 Palestinian victims. And it said that the, the statistics that I looked at said that 8,500 Hamas had been taken out. I, I just did a little math. I love calculating nonsense. And so I, I looked up to see how many Hamas there were. And it said, you know, 24, 24,500 of them. And some general in the IDF had said, we're going to take them all out. We're taking them all out. Now, they got 8,500 of them, but 22,000 victims. That means that those, the rest of that, that's collateral damage. That's women and children. That's somebody's mother or wife. That's somebody's son. In order for them to get those 8,500, 22,000 victims. So the little bit of math that I did said, well, if they are going to take them all out, just the way this general said, we're going to take them all out. And you had as much collateral damage in, you know, to get the remaining two-thirds of them gone, you end up with an interesting number, which is 66,000 Palestinian victims to get rid of all of Hamas, which, of course, you can't do. What I'm saying is there's always resistance. So if that's your strategy, you're always going to have huge, huge numbers of collateral damage. So I'm appalled by what's going on. You see people speak out. You see the pushback. You see people get fired and censored. It's a terrible, terrible thing that's happening and I'm not saying that there is 
even anything that we can do. But this is one where I don't want to stop talking about it. Uh, I will mention on December the 10th, I put up a redux and I entitled it Palestine is Still the Issue, which I got that title from a John Pilger film that he had made uh, you know, a good 20 years ago, which was basically a remake and update of a film that he had done by the same title. I just learned that John Pilger passed away on the 30th of December at the age of 84 from pulmonary fibrosis. And Alan linked to him many times over the years. I've linked to him, and I mentioned him at uh, in this talk from December the 10th. I said that I didn't necessarily agree with his politics, and, you know, in the aftermath of his death, boy, the haters have come out uh, in force to say he wasn't a journalist at all. He was a polemicist. He just told a story that he thought would fit the scenario that he had already made up. Lots and lots of bashing, um, but then, you know, there were plenty of people who admired the work that he did over the years. But that's the, the passing of John Pilger, a journalist from Australia who lived in England for many years, a big vocal supporter of Julian Assange. So hopefully uh, someone steps up to fill that void to bring attention to the fact that, yes, Julian Assange is still being held. So there's our freedom of speech and... And that's the world we live in. But yes, Palestine is still the issue. And so it is something to think about and to talk about this year going forward. What you won't hear from me too, too much is anything having to do with aliens or Jeffrey Epstein. I mean, this is huge. Uh, we're, we're going to hear more, we're told, from Jeffrey Epstein himself. You know, I don't know if this is some taped deposition, but I've, I've taken a glance at this, and I don't see anything that I didn't already know, which is the puppets who they put for us to throw our rotten tomatoes at are bent they're deviant, and they are bribable. What has changed? So, again, just try to keep it focused on the big picture. I will leave you with most of this talk from Alan from January the 5th, 2020, and then the addendum at the end where Darren and I talk about, okay, not too much of a tease. We're talking about tragedy and hope. So I wish you well and have a good week. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on the 5th of January 2020. Ooh, scary to say that, isn't it? And I used to always find that even at school, it's amazing how something just could give you flashbacks to different years. And I used to find it odd that we'd all, pretty well the whole class, would try and 
and stay a year behind when it was as a change over time, you'd automatically put down the year as it had just been. And nothing really changes. I think it's, there's probably trepidation in society, especially the way that we're managed and conditioned to live under forms of fear of one kind or another, uh, mainly from government authorities, really, and their agencies. There's lots of agencies working to work with government authorities, as you well know. Even newspapers are part of the structure. And uh, years and years ago, I gave talks on that from from different professors, including Quigley, who talked about the, the Anglo-American establishment and how they got they got Britain ready for World War II by terrifying the public that they're all going to get gassed, number one, by the Germans and bombed out of their houses across the whole country. And to make the people... You understand, we're treated like a herd. And there's no time for obvious, and even now, uh, as we get the same rep- repetitions of the same quotes, in fact, of the previous wars for the last 25, 30 years, really, all across the Middle East mainly, and parts of Africa too. It's fascinating to see the same quotes, you know, given to the public, to terrify you, really, which is really meant to make you behave and knuckle down, as they call it. And it's so sad. Here we are in a brand new year again. It doesn't even feel optimistic, as we say. It hasn't been optimistic for a long time for most people because we're not, we're in a stagnation mode and it's intentional and it's managed. Folk have no idea how managed things really are. Uh, We think we're making our own decisions. We think that uh, uh, we're doing what we want to do. Right down to even fashions. I, I, I used to give talks on that because it is fascinating. How every generation thinks uh, uh, this is their time. Uh, the youth are always used, always used for big agendas, and they never know it themselves. They think they're making their own decisions, and they're given uh, false leaders who are well educated, way above uh, the, the average uh, uh, person they're going to lead. In fact, at least educated in their mission, which is to change society in, in a predicted manner for the authorities or for the elites. And nothing has changed there, except there's way more of them than there used to be. And awfully well paid, in fact, pretending that they're you. I can remember a long time ago when they used the, the pop in the rock industry as a form of revolution. And it was meant to be that. Of course it was. And, and um, Jerry Marsden, I remember him talking a long time ago, who, who had a few hits, and, and he had Jerry and the, pay, the Pacemakers that were happy, happy songs, the girl-boy type songs, and that, they were, that was quite normal up until then. And he was talking about the change that came in with the seriousness with the Beatles and so on, when they started getting serious and political, and it changed everything. And the old fun stuff uh, was tossed out the window because, after all, the society was to change. They didn't want boy, girl, get married type of thing. They wanted a big, uh, they wanted dysfunctions in society to, to change it and to try to reduce marriages, etc. The communist idea, of course, communism, uh, there's different fronts for the same thing, uh, different terms but for the same thing, as you all know. But it is quite amazing to, to think that uh, every generation, as I say, thinks they're doing their own thing. 
nothing's further from the truth. Nothing at all is further from the truth. I used to wonder, even at school, uh, looking at the, the, the old paintings of people who ran countries in Europe, including Britain too, who used to wear wigs and uh, tights, you know, tight silk stockings for the upper crust and so on. Vastly different, of course, from the, the, the majority of the people who were the working class, but the ones who ruled them with their buckles on their shoes and their silver stockings and their wigs and their handkerchiefs and their tucked into their bottoms of their sleeves and all that. And they wore rouge and things, eh? And, and this was, this is the manly thing. You say, well, wait a minute. Who brought this stuff in here? Who brought it in? And a lot of it was brought in from France. It was way ahead of most countries at that time. For leisure and the lifestyles of leisure, as they called it. And unfortunately, the ones who ran Britain also adopted that too, that whole idea. And I'm sure too, they thought that they were making their own decisions and what were going to weird. It's all laid on for you. I used to, when I was really small, I looked, I remember watching, um, little clips on Mao Zedong or you see him in newspapers with his blue tunic type outfit on. The collarless idea is very similar, in fact, to the Beatles uh, uh, uniform that they came out with. They were given too. They didn't design anything, of course. But part of their makeup too was to have this kind of outfit, the Beatles suit, that didn't have the real collar on it. But the, the Matsy Tong one was the one that Hillary Clinton likes to wear at times, even today. Uh, it's an up, a, a, a collar that goes up, more like a priest collar, only it's just part of the blue outfit off the tunic. And and had the blue pants on to match it. The idea, you see, under comradeship, everyone would be the same. And and this would help to eliminate the class system. That's also why they pushed for the elimination of school uniforms. You know? And so you'd all be the same, basically. So they give you, basically, a tunic-type outfit to wear. And in the West, when I saw people who were older than me wearing the jeans, 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 that was all the fad for the youth, and they had bell-bottom jeans too for them. But the fact of jeans, 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 and again, they were blue, kind of like Matsy Tung's outfit, and they even gave blue blue Levi-type jackets you could get as well. So your uniform really looked much the same, as, as a, a, a bit, maybe a bit better made or whatever, than the communist system. But folk never figured it out. They just wore it. You see, you'd buy it and wear it, thinking you're making your own decisions, you're trendy, you're in, and all that kind of stuff. But that's how it's, how it's managed. We're managed by big, big powers. And if you remember that the whole idea, and I'm sorry to jump into this just off the bat, I was going to say, y'all, first of all, I hope y'all go over, <laughs> over your, your new year and, uh, and didn't get too wasted or whatever you did or ate too much, uh, because it's, you're liable to do that, um, probably now out of panic. <laughs> Because you really don't see much good coming down the pike. Uh, and it's like Groundhog Day, as I say, as we wake up to repetition of the wars with the same excuses by the same peoples and so on. But yeah, when you think about decisions and what you do and all the rest, you have no idea of the incredible powers at work to, to manage you all. And you think about even the computer. I mean, they used to joke at one time in the early sci-fi's, well, early, uh, you know, early-ish uh, sci-fi's from the 1960s, you can see them. 
and sometimes 70s and Britain did a few like that where they'd, they'd have this alien creature that was like mainly a big brain uh, and maybe a few tentacles coming out but it, it was stuck in a it was stuck in a, a, a big chair type deal I thought as a child I, I, thought, I thought you know the authorities be all, would be awfully happy to have us all stuck in chairs because I, I knew already and, and I knew enough uh, of the, the 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 war, the last war, the, the, that time it was World War Two, and then the Korean War. The authorities on all sides had restrictions on travel, as an example, and you were supposed to live in your own community. And in the Soviet system, that was really way ahead of its time uh, with, with its uh, restrictions and so on. And you must stay within your little community area. But they even had curfews on at night and things like that. Um, and I, I thought, wouldn't it be, I guess their whole idea would have us all stuck in a chair. And and some of the sci-fis, they had the withering away, even articles about it. Well, eventually our, our, our legs would wither away, because you wouldn't be using them anymore in the future, because it would all be brain power and stuff like that. And they're not too far off, they're off the mark, really. Uh, I, I, <laughs> I think you look at the... Uh, back in the 70s, they had a big splurge of Japanese workmen's accommodation. They were like hives, just big buildings with with crawling type places where you could sleep. There's there's their little bed, and and their mattress on the floor, and up in the corner they'd have a little TV, miniature TV set, and so on. And these were set up for workmen at the time. And China probably had the same things too. And we all looked upon it with, with curiosity, uh, wondering how folk can manage that. They said, well, these are workers, and they can be transient-type workers, and uh, working on construction here, and then maybe another city that, in, in a month or two's time. And so they set these things up for them. And it was, But they're all quite happy. They all said that they're really happy, because they, they're, they're, they're little private compartments, even though you couldn't stand up in them. When you think about it step by step by step, you're getting trained into these smaller and smaller units by our masters, of course, who, who, they, when you're in a socialist system, experts run your lives. But the intention is not to let you think that they're running your, the whole point, you, you might react to it, you see. So that the idea is, is almost, almost morphs, <laughs> it morphs through the ether to you, through bits and bytes of information, and and you, you're programmed. You are programmed to do what they want you to do, and to behave the same way too. Uh, that's always been the goal, the ultimate goal of the true Soviet man. Remember, the Soviet man and woman eventually wouldn't even have money. You wouldn't need money. That was the idea too. Credits might be the way, but you wouldn't really need it because you'd all be so well behaved, ultimately. There would be no greed because all, eventually all your, your needs would be supplied to you in massive warehouse type factory style stores, which we have now, of course, but this is way back. Then they talked about it. They even talked in Marxism about having one factory that could supply the shoes for the whole Soviet system. This one factory, another factory could be built to, to supply all the light bulbs of the whole the whole Soviet Union and Europe and so on. And you see, well, we gave it all to China, huh? Do you think that was all coincidence or something? We make nothing here now. And what I'm saying is, there's nothing happens by itself. It's not just coincidence over and over and over. No, it's not at all. 
And above all the, the hubble bubble of toil and trouble, of wars and everything else, and economic crashes, etc. Above all, there's a global structure managing all of this. There really is. You're supposed to be kept down on, on a lower strata of understanding, just the basic fear mode of wars and Middle East and, and bombs and things like that. You see, that's where you're supposed to be stuck. You're not supposed to understand the higher, the higher stuff above it all. And you'll never understand anything unless you do. And, and you must understand that, that each time you want to go and do something, think, who, who would approve of me doing whatever I'm going to do, you see? And who would disapprove of me doing what I'm just about to do, you see? And it's because you can't see people directly, doesn't mean you're not getting managed by them. Of course you are. You're getting managed every day by them. If you're on the computer, for instance, you're being prompted of what to look at. You're being prompted... Uh, what is a good person is supposed to be, and don't look at that. Don't bad people look at this, or, or whatever happens. You know, you're constantly being managed and monitored. Of course, it's astonishing. It's absolutely astonishing, really. How easy it is to train the public to be what your elite want you to be. Now, for an example. In repetition, and, uh, because we're trained by repetition in a sense. When things work, they do studies on everything we do and what we think and how we react to things, and they know what works on us, you see. Behaviorists and psychologists, etc. Especially with the internet, in real time, they can, they can put out a fake or whatever meme they want to do and watch everybody react to it and chat and so on. And, and they do their instant studies by algorithms, etc. And they're pretty accurate in what works. But I was amused to see the same kind of rhetoric being used by uh, Donald Trump. Uh, because it's written for him by his, his scriptwriters, you know. Uh, as it was, as the same uh, things that Obama came out with too, written by his scriptwriters, and way back to, to George Bush uh, with the, the with the Gulf War, well, with uh, <laughs> Operation Iraqi Freedom, right? <laughs> and uh, where, the, where the media had, had cleverly altered step by step, and it was a psychological operation, which was admitted later, by the way, massive scale. Once they got the, the war going in Afghanistan, which was on the list, of course, before it all happened with the t- Twin Towers, after a while they managed to, to my year, to start to shift the sights for the public to think that Saddam Hussein in Iraq had something to do with it, which he didn't, of course. But what was interesting during the inquiry afterwards, once they did put uh, Iraq back into the Stone Age, uh, which was the agenda, by the way, Written and I, I give talks about it at the time because I know that I read articles by Brzezinski, who had confabs with his pal Kissinger about it, and Kissinger said that the main intention for for this kind of war against Iraq and other countries on the list, which is a peanut group, uh, he said the main intention was to so destroy the nation of Iraq, as an example. They could never ever formulate again together as a nation. They would create so many factions afterwards. They could never really be a stable nation again. And then there'd be no, no threat to any particular country around them, basically. And that's never changed. That's what's happened to this present day. 
But what was interesting, the June inquiry afterwards, afterwards, it was, a, it was like a, a very informal inquiry about it when they, they said to, to, to George Bush, why did you attack Iraq? And they said, well, you know, you tried to infer. They said that you inferred that he was behind Ireland. And George Bush quite honestly said, you know, when a few times that they're honest, when they're very cocky, you know, he said, well, I never said that Saddam Hussein had anything to do with America being attacked. He said that he was just a bad man and the world is better off without him. And a big smile on his face. And you pretty well heard the same thing, the same, the same type. See, these are psychological responses written by experts who just look up the book, up the manual, and what do you use in this circumstance? Well, you use this, this works with the public. And then you heard that just the other day there after the US took out an Iranian uh, military leader. And, and, the, and there's, there's Trump saying the same thing. Well, he was a bad man. He's responsible for lots of death, blah, 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 and so on. So being a bad man, no judge, jury, or trial, nothing. Being a bad man, according to world leaders, remember, who've got uh, you know, complete militaries under their, under their fingers, supposedly, and with buttons and all home, but can just decide who's bad and all the rest of it without any kind of uh, public inquiry. Uh, investigation beforehand or anything else or judge jury uh, is just done that's that should terrify people but it, it, it never does really folk folk accept everything very quickly most people in a way and uh, it's like deja vu over and over and over or groundhog day you just keep seeing the same things over and over again the same tactics are used the same excuses are used because they're all from the excuse manual it's psychological warfare operations that's what you tell the public in this circumstance they'll, they'll make it don't don't get too elaborate with with your reasons because then you can shoot holes in, in your and why you did it so make it very simple and and as obscure as possible don't don't tell them much you see and that's what you get right now, because the, the object has nothing to do uh, with just killing one person. It, it, it's it's a, you've got to look at uh, the techniques of embargoes, right? The embargoes with Iraq before the, the dem- they decimated Iraq was bad enough, and they had um, Madeleine Albright and other ones on the on the head of the the, the, the board at NATO supposedly. Uh, security councils, etc. Um, and she was asked when, when they had an embargo and folk were starving to death and children were starving to death and they couldn't get medicines in or anything like that. They'd already destroyed, by the way, some of the, the big medical pharmaceutical facilities already. All infrastructure eventually was to be just destroyed. But before they totally did it, they, they, they said that um, they tried to starve the folk in submission. Now, you think about, if you truly had a bad man, a bad man, you know, uh, just running your country, how would you feel if some country starved you to death uh, and all that, um, and stopped and literally didn't allow you to sell anything abroad to get money coming into the country to feed yourself? How would you feel if it happened to you because there was a bad man running you, you know? Think about it. And so let's slaughter the whole bunch of the people because of a bad man and his little regime at the top who keep everybody suppressed, supposedly. That's what we're told.
even though it was, you know, Saddam Hussein at that time was a CIA asset, been trained by the CIA, set up and put there by the CIA. And believe you me, that's, that's a big warning in anybody who's used by the CIA. <laughs> Eventually, uh, they'll use you and use you and use you until you're expendable. And then they'll use you again by having you sacrificed. You know, that's, that's really what they'll do. You, you have no friends, you see. Uh, when the CIA comes to you, 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 believe you me, the CIA has no friends. The, 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 in fact, it's almost to me, I, I, I like a child's mind in that children have an, an, an ability Nice of an ability to see people. I gave a talk about that back in the nineties too. When you, when you hear children talking about, like a wolf, they, they can see in their mind's eye a person as a child. You sense something, kind of like a, a dog will sense who's good and bad and that type of thing. But children could do it too. They could sense some, and they, they don't have the vocabulary to explain why you don't like somebody. So much, but it's a sense to get. So it's like a wolf or like a something or blah, blah, blah. Well, that's how you have to, you try and retain that. You should try and retain that forever through your life because it's a survival mechanism for, for all of us. Not to be fooled by glib talking, whoever happens to be, professionals who, who want something from you or they want you to do something. And, uh, and you should never do it. You, you get a sense this is wrong. You get a sense when, and it's more than that. It's so, it's never been so blatant for those who want to know what's going on as it is today. And it won't last long because censorship's coming down so fast, as we well know. But Quigley, getting back to Quigley, on his talk about World War II, he said that all the media in Britain at that time, in the 30s, was owned by uh, big power moguls who literally all belonged to the Royal Institute for International Affairs, this massive private club. This is CFR in America, you see. And, and they decided to terrify the public, terrify them, to, so that they get ready. You got to, you're preparing the public to hate another country. You understand? Because they want you eventually to go and fight that country, and you don't know anything about it. But they've been preparing this for years. It's just that the, the, the cannon fodder are the only people who don't really know about it. So you must train the people who are civilians and they work in grocery stores and different things like that and make that and train them for what's coming along the pike that they don't know themselves. The children, the, the young, the people don't know. <laughs> They're kept like, like children. Uh, but the ones above you are training you and training you step by step to hate the enemy. You see? Before you even know that they are an enemy, but the ones who, who rule you certainly do know, and they want them eliminated. Nothing's changed. In fact, it's even more precise today with the techniques used with mass communication right to your cell phone or right to whatever is your computer or, or your, your TV, you know. You're all getting the same data at the same time, the same updates, same programming at the same time in, in order to, to get you ready for something, you see. So you'll have the right response. Now the right response is not turning your back and say, I'm not going to have anything to do with this war. The right response is, is, is going into a form of shock and fear. And I'll leave it to the professionals. They must know what they're doing. They must have. But see, you wouldn't. It's like, I can remember where people in the past are often accused 
of coming out with certain kinds of statements and used. But you have to, often what they're doing is using other people's statements before them, you see. So you've got to really find out who really said it. And it's, it's quite enlightening, it's often their enemies. But anyway, you, you'll find that Goebbels, for instance, in World War II Germany, he, he, he said that, and supposedly Adolf Hitler said it too, but they got it from previous people before him. But they said, if you're going to tell a lie to the public, right, uh, to get them to do something, he says, make sure it's a big lie. Because everybody lies, you see. And right down to, to the innocent white lies. But everybody will lie. And you, people, because they lie, will, will, they can accept small lies. Oh, that's a lie by so and so. But if you tell them a real big, big lie that's got incredible consequences for everybody, you see, you wouldn't do that as a little liar. So you can't imagine anybody actually really going that far with a massive lie. So you, cause you wouldn't do it. And that's why they get away with it. And nothing's changed. That's really how things really, really are. Tell a big lie. And that's what you've had your whole life long when it comes to war after war after war. Get big lies that are absolute nonsense. Now you have to really stand back and say, wait a minute here. People, front people, like Bush, and every other one that comes afterwards, they're all bought and paid for because your country, you see, is conquered. <laughs> but the public, again, are not supposed to ever, ever figure that out. Uh, it's not good, you know, knowing that you're totally conquered, you might get some real resistance then. And so you, you have to keep the sham going that somehow you're in, in a democracy, even if you're really in a republic, doesn't matter. But, but when you have the front man saying, you know, it's a good thing, you know, and, we're better off uh, without this person or that person. And they've, they've just spent millions of dollars with either attack drones or something or whatever just to kill somebody. It's quite, it should be rather frightening, really, when you think about it, because we know we're going, we are in. We're not just going into a more tyrannical, controlled society. We're in it. Uh, but it's, it's going to progress. Years ago, I imagined even having uh, the, the little drones. I remember doing the articles, in fact, where the Pentagon admitted they paid millions of dollars for experimental t- tiny drones that looked like birds, for instance. Uh, they even showed you uh, little clips and videos of, of experimental ones they had, little robotic things that they could uh, spy on people, and that's what it was about. Some of them were like the vampire ones, little, little bats for, for, for more dusk type uh, scenarios or, or uses. And other ones were birds. They could recharge just like your cell phone. Some of the cell phones now can, can do that by sitting on uh, electrical lines above the ground or even telephone lines. They could actually get, uh, recharge, recharge themselves off those lines by sitting on the field, the electrical field around it. They had wonderful little things like, like birds that could follow you along the street and, and nick into the door if you're going into an apartment building just behind you and, and even crawl on the walls and things like that. They, this is years ago they had this kind of stuff, you see, because the society you're, you're, you're going into, we're into actually, as I say, is a monitored, controlled society. That's the reason you were really given the computer, by the way. It wasn't to help you out. It was to completely monitor everybody, everybody eventually in the planet, except the ones who rule you. 
they've had exem- exemptions from it. In fact, they have a different internet system, in fact. But for the rest of the public, you see, uh, you, you've got to be con- totally controlled and predictable, utterly predictable. And so here we go, going through the next series of wars. Uh, to me, honestly, it's like a nightmare. I remember giving these talks so long ago. And it's just repetition because it's the same list of countries that are, that are to be taken out. So the, years can pass if they can't get their way. And I, I'm not going to give lectures on it because, and I certainly could. But years have passed and they didn't quite pull it off in all those countries that were on the list of the peanut group. So they'll keep going and keep going. If it takes another 20 years to do it, they'll do it. They're determined now with Trump. That's why they put Trump in, by the way, if you didn't figure that out. Uh, they put him in uh, to, to, to accomplish the task of the peanut group. That's why he's surrounded by the same people, basically, with the same mantras. And that's why you're hearing the same mantras, in fact. But it's the same bunch of countries. I can remember back when uh, Iraq was uh, attacked. And it was attacked and invaded, remember, by the U.S. and Britain and a few other helpers and so on, but mainly the U.S. and Britain. And and it hadn't, remember, it had not attacked anybody outside the U.S. or not. They hadn't done that. It was all made up. Because they were on the list of the peanut group. That was the reason they were taken out. All the countries in that area, around that area, I'll say around, were to be demolished back to the Stone Age, as I said, until they could never get together as a, as a formidable, coherent country that would pull together as a nation under times of stress and even have war-making abilities or even defense. Of, they could never even unify for defense if you create so many factions. Libya was on it too. Syria was on it as well. Yemen and uh, I think Sudan was on it too. And it was published back in the 90s and then twice actually and then in 97 it was published again. And then, of course, the Bush group with the same PDAC members that, that, that drafted it all up were in power by then, and away they went to war. And it takes all this time, they're still at it. Millions have died here, millions of people, you better say millions, when they starved, again with embargoes, which are hellish things, that they stop you from importing, exporting, and, and eventually you can't even feed yourself, and you starve, and you're supposed to just put up with it, you know? That this is, this is, this is supposedly is a more humane way of, of having a war starve the folk to death. And what they'll also say is, um, well, you see, they're going to for- that's going to force the people to, 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 to be stabilized, destabilize their own country and th- overthrow the tyrant, you see, the tyrant being whoever happens to be running their country. Well, all I remember is you never heard much about Syria before. You never heard much about Libya. Not really. Uh, a lot of rhetoric in the papers. It was good for rhetoric, you know. And and you, you also had, had uh, Iraq was was fairly quiet for years. And but and it was all all the different tiny little factions that could explode were all kept under by strongmen, and that's what the that's how you kept them working. This country's working. You have to have a strong man in charge. And once you eliminate them all, it, well, look what happened. That was intentional to destabilize them all. Not to help anybody or help them <laughs> or the people. In, no, no, nothing to do with that at all, folks. No, not at all. We all know what's going on here. But um, 
I, I can remember Madeleine Albright, as I mentioned before, when she was asked on television that at that time, with embargoes on Iraq, before they would end to totally bomb it from the, to the Stone Age, uh, this embargoes alone, they said, you know, this killed half a million people so far with starvation and disease, and, and, and they can't even get medications or even vitamins, you know. And they says, is it worth it? And she says, oh yes, absolutely. Yeah. These are the psychopaths. And you should be very afraid of these characters. They remind me more of strange insects. Uh, an insect, you see, is programmed. It can't be any other way. An insect has no affinity for anything around it or any, anything it's going to eat, even, even other insects. It just does it as programmed. And that's what these characters, you, you can't, I can't relate to them. I really honestly can't. As being human. I can't relate to them at all. And if these characters are in charge, over, over, over very authoritarian regimes, which are getting worse and worse, you should be very, very afraid of it and therefore stop it from happening, honestly. Because it's getting all around you now. And it never ends up nicely. It ends up as a horror show eventually. It starts off with, don't think this, don't say that. What made you ask that question? But, you see? That's how it all starts off. And then targeting different segments of society. And, and, and that's why the white folk are getting hammered right now. For what? For existing? <laughs> Most white folk, honestly, are descending from people who never ever had it good at all. In reality, too, embargoes are meant to provoke the country, your target, into attacking, to break out of the embargo. And attacking the ones who are causing it. The idea being to have your virtue as, as a non-aggressor. All we did was stop them from eating, you know, and getting food in. That's all we did. <laughs> so when a real uh, physical attack happens against you, uh, you can still stand up and say, well, you know, we, 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 we didn't want this to happen. We, we've tried other methods, meaning starving them to death. You know. Think about it. What would you do? <laughs> And this is what happened to Germany, too, before World War II. Uh, it may be a completely different outcome, and no war at all, if there been concessions and all the rest of it. And don't forget that Germany at that time was put up there, even by Time magazine, as uh, Hitler was put as Man of the Year in like 1933 or so. So uh, don't forget, um, you can you can you can goad and goad people into into absolutely desperate action, actions as well, desperation, and that's what's happening right now with uh, Iraq. I can remember, as I say, the first attack they had with Iraq, certain elements that would benefit from having enemies wiped out. Uh, said told the U.S. presidents, "Don't stop there. Go right across through Libya and into Syria." They were telling, this is in the newspapers, by the way. <laughs> it was amazing to see the U.S. being told what to do. And uh, it didn't quite work out that way. So they had to go back to using proxy armies, mercenaries, financed, made-up mercenaries to attack Syria. And, and in fact, um, to, 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 to eventually take out Libya as well. And again, Libya definitely is gone. That's why you got so much migration because Gaddafi did keep uh, masses. You know, that's what he said. If you if you finish me off, it's the only wall to stop Africa from invading the whole of Europe. That's what he said.
And that's true. We have to look up, see what happened, and, and who was getting money to try to um, divert mass migration and, uh, from going across into Europe. So they took out Gaddafi, guaranteeing that Europe would be completely changed forever. And that has happened, folks. You're looking at a chessboard here, but you just don't see the players, do you? But there's definitely players that will be above you, way, way above all this, making it happen. But anyway, the, the U.S. is here they go again, and so the, the, the same old thing. Um, you, you embargo the, the nation, you force them to retaliate. retaliate. You even goad them into it by bombing someone who was, was part of the militias to try and keep the stabilization process going inside Iraq. Iraq had invited them in, by the way. You know? But I remember this. They invited some of the shite uh, Commanders in uh, with their military to work alongside the militias inside Iraq to try to keep the peace, and then you go and so you guaranteed you guaranteed retaliation. That's what they're after now. It's retaliation, and don't forget too the U.S. and, and Trump said it too with, with Syria when they were supposed to have been pulled out of Syria. Oh, I've still got troops with oil fields. We've still got the oil. Why is the U.S. Keeping a nation's oil supply from them. This is the nation's, that's part of their, that's part of their, part of the, the, the income to keep the country going. Do you understand what's happening here? It's plunder. Of course it's plunder. How can you have, have the upper hand and be on the high, moral high ground when you're plundering across? I remember giving the talks when, when Tony Blair, the one man banned for international supposed socialism, <laughs> Uh, wanted war in the Middle East with Iraq. I can remember it. And I remember warning people about it so that eventually you'll find out that they're going to be a big, big looting operation. And then years, a few years later, I remember reading the articles on the air where it was admitted. And I always tell you a few years later, you know, and the, the papers and the newspapers in Britain said that, that Tony Blair had invited some of the top uh, moguls for, for oil, the oil industry, the big, the big corporations in before they attacked Iraq to divvy up who would get which oil fields to themselves. They're a big looting organization. I mean, this is plunder, folks. It's plunder. Let's be honest. There's no moral high ground here at all. It's just big, big business. And, and really, nothing much has changed. At one time we thought with World War One and Two, and then the Cold War, there was a moral idea to the forces. That's why guys would join the forces, because they didn't want a repetition of major world wars. And now you had the big bad bear looming at you, even though the West created the big bad bear from the start and funded communism and funded and fed them even after the Bolshevik revolutions. The best enemies that money can buy is, is uh, or buy and create. Well, it's, nothing's changed. Uh, and the same, ta- this is a sideline, the same tactic is being used with China. China didn't make itself what it is. We signed agreements. I remember giving the talks years ago on it, where, where we, we signed agreements. Our, our pol- the politicians, they're not ours, let's, let's be honest here. They're little nobodies, you know, little puppets. But they signed all the agreements uh, for free trade and the World Trade Organization and so on with China, most favored nation trading status, where we'd fund them up. Our tax money would fund them, we'd put hospitals and we'd, we'd fund, uh, even, and, and the, the governments even 
put ads out for the big corporations pretty well. They said, look, if you move to China, uh, we'll fund your, your, your transfer, your, your up, your, when you move up wholesale from this country to China, we'll pay for you to move there. And anything you have to take with you, even you start your factories up. And then we'll, then we'll train your, your people uh, and pay your people to train the Chinese to take over eventually. This, I can remember, this was unbelievable what was happening. So quietly, but it was published, but not all. Most people you see don't think. Brzezinski said it in his book Between Two Ages. He says, he says the public shortly, this is the 1970s, he says the public shortly will be unable to reason or think for themselves. They'll expect the media to do the reasoning for them. And they honestly do now. The media is, is private folks. It's not there to help you. It's always been politically employed by those in power to guide you along the path of least resistance for for those who own you. <laughs> Basically, that's what it's for. But the public do. Does it? Well, the media will tell us what they what they worry about, don't they? You know. Yeah, they often will tell you what they worry about, and it's, it's generally it's nothing to do with you. But things you really should worry about, they're not going to tell you. They're going to tell you at all. They all knew, all the big moguls, they're in bed with the top international financiers. They all knew that they were going to crash the economy in 2007 and eight, but they didn't tell the public. You know, They got all their loot out of it. They made profits of all. That's how it runs the world. The same gangsters that bring in the wars and demonize whoever runs little countries so they can loot them and to get them out of the way so that, so that the people who think that they should rule the world should be able to rule it instead, you see. This is what's going on here, folks. But it's honestly a nightmare having the same dream over and over and over again. It just never ends. The same list as well. And I'm going to touch on that tonight because time has gone on, as they say, and I should really get on with it too. Now I'll just touch on this one, right? I said this before, I told you, Iran's always the target, has been for the last quite a long time. And before Christmas I mentioned it too, around that period that Iran will be next. And I said, I said too, the impeachment will, will go all quiet if Trump just gets the war started, because that's what he's there for. And you'll suddenly, like magic, you'll see all the media off his back and, and they'll start praising him. Because that's what he's been put in for, you see. Whoever does this job, as I call it, the list, uh, is going to be the hero, you see, for those who really rule you. <laughs> the impeachment trial in limbo is Senate leaders trade blows, it says. So there's a, there's a little clue there. And this is about Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer, it says, and how they, they, they've made zero headway on designing a bipartisan set of rules for President Trump, his impeachment trial. In other words, it's stalling. This is the article that says it's stalling. Well, no wonder. If he does what he's supposed to be doing, you see, which is a, 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 always a mystery to the public who are not in on it, if he does what he's supposed to be doing and what he got put in for, he'll be a wonderful guy. He will, honestly. And so uh, that's on the cards, as I say. Now, I'll put up this article here. So many of the original articles are disappearing like, like crazy down the memory hole. And that's what the internet's for, of course, is the, oh, we'll put all your books you see on, 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 uh, on disc or, or PDF and don't worry about it. In fact, don't even keep it at home because put it all in the cloud and gradually even gets censored off and down the memory hole. It's all worked out that way before you were given the computer, folks. 
There are an awful lot of nuisance books out there, you know. So here's an article here, Global Warfare. We're going to take out seven countries in five years. I've given this talk so many times before, I could probably do it in my sleep. But anyway, it says Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, and Iran. So, so this was the video interview with General Wesley Clark, who was sent over there, remember? <laughs> and, um, and even he's got a history too, you should really look into it. It came out afterwards when he ran for politics, they caused a bit of a stink. But anyway, it says that the interview serves as a reminder regarding the diabolical timeline of America's hegemonic project as Iran the next target to be taken out. You know, as I say, this is an old, an old article really re-put out again, uh, originally published in 2007, about the list. But the list came from the peanut group from the 1990s. I'll say it again, you know. Seven countries in five years, that was the original plan. If they kept going, like, like I told you, uh, the, the US was told to keep, don't stop there with Iraq, they keep them right through to, all the way through into Syria and take them out too. But they didn't quite make it. But anyway, it says seven countries in five years, Iraq, right? Syria, Lebanon, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, and Iran. That's the list. This is from a talk uh, that General Wesley Clark gave. Um, with democracy now and the video the video literally I'll put up a link it'll, it'll vanish very quickly if you can copy if you can copy it in your streaming do so because uh, as I say things are just vanishing like you wouldn't believe honestly but that's how things work in reality and, and deception right? that's what intelligence is is deception I hope you understand that and the first people who'd be deceived are, are, are their own countries Populations, so that you'll get on the moral high ground on board with your governments, folks, for what they plan to do. So here you go. You, you, if, I mean, don't forget, there's people heard this their whole life. They're not that old. Well, they're old enough, you know, from the 90s to the present time. This is all they've heard, the, the wars with these same countries, folks. The list, the list, the list. And there was, there was no... Um, a secret at the time who drew the list up. But also in this article, is in print, right? On Tuesday, I, uh, I interviewed Wesley Clark of the 92nd Street Y Cultural Center here in New York City before a live audience. So this is, there's even a, a print out of what was, what was said, if you can't get the, the actual video itself. And I know it will just vanish again, because every time I put these things up, they vanish. Actual videos. Benny, what do you think of the generals who run for president? And Clark says, I like them as happened before. Will it happen again? It might, it says. It says, later in the interview, I followed up on that question. Will you announce for, uh, for president? I haven't said I won't, because he, he was only run at the time. But they go through the list of, of countries. Eh? And he explains what happened to him, because he was given the list and told that we're going to take all these, he had no idea that we're going to take all these countries, but he was given the list, and he was, he was rather shocked, and he, he talks about this in his live interview at the time. And it's a keeper, folks, for those who want to understand what happens. What he tells you from a top general who was over there, right, leading armies, an invasion, you understand that it's very volatile, uh, the, the, the different countries that he was attacking, if they knew who was attacking them, not just Americans, they'd be even more furious. It's, it's astonishing what goes on, folks. The, the people don't know or the public. They just never know what's really, really going on.
I'll put that one up, folks. And then this one too. It's a good, simplistic in a way, but but at least it's, 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 it's better than nothing at all. How controlled explanations are achieved, it says. I'll take stuff from anybody uh, who's been involved in anything like this. I don't care who they are, as I say, but when it comes to how the mind works and how, and how you're used and, and how psychological warfare works and so on, it's just how controlled explanations are achieved. It's a good article on how the intelligence agencies who that plan big, big, big events um, already have the explanations written up before they make the first move, you see, for the public. So this is how, this is how they, they, they call it controlled explanations. Like, and it gives an example, before the dust was even cleared, within about 15 minutes of this, the Twin Towers supposedly being hit or whatever, in New York City, uh, 9-11, uh, within about 50 minutes, across all the media, uh, they had a top uh, U.S. politician saying it was Ben Laden, and that, that's all they heard. Ben Laden, Ben Laden. No one says how come you know already it's Ben Laden. You see, even though Ben Laden, uh, some of Ben Laden, he, he vehemently denied that anything to do with it on the different uh, videos that he put out himself. Doesn't matter, you see. They've got to, you've got to get a reason to invade countries and destroy them, and loot them, right? It's a big, big plans in there, and all the oil, all the the pipelines of oil and everything, gas they had planned for that whole region. All these different countries, owned by about two countries that had nothing to do with them, were all drafted up there too. They showed you all these things. They're still going on today. All these countries that have demolished, they, they, they loot all the oil and gas from them. So I'll put that up anyway, because the time's getting short here, that particular article. I just want to mention too, uh, <laughs> the papers, as you have noticed, have Jeffrey Epstein's socialite, Madame uh, Ghislaine Maxwell, being hidden from the FBI in a series of safe houses because of information she has on powerful people. But they're saying that she's possibly uh, even in Israel. But I'm, I'm waiting for the movie. I'm surprised. That, I'm, I bet you anything, uh, there's, there's top producers working on it all. It's a bit big, big. Uh, may, they might even do a book first. I don't, most of them won't read it, you see. They don't they want video today. They don't even want audio anymore because they can't seem to get little pictures of cartoons in front of their faces and things. But to me, that's how you train folks. And if you can't sit and listen and use your own mind with the way you're listening to you, you'll never retain it. Anyway, um, yeah, I'm waiting for the movie to come out. That'll be quite the movie, eh? It's got everything, sex, violence, extortion, blackmail, you know, and a lot worse too. And Yeah, what a movie, eh? Think about it. That'd be a blockbuster if you get the right people to do it. And if Trump doesn't get on with the slaughtering uh, uh, and grabbing the loot in those countries uh, for his masters, then yeah, he's going to get uh, he'll be in the bad books again. So he's going to get on with it. They've used proxy armies. We've trained proxy armies. We've funded proxy armies. It didn't work out too well. And now the, the, a lot of these proxy armies are across Europe, <laughs> living as refugees supposedly. Or migrants, and uh, what a what a hellhole it creates, eh? And now you're going to get masses more migrants if Iran gets hit. Obviously, Iran has been bringing people out for years now because I wouldn't live in that country either. When you know you're on the list, you've watched what happened to the rest of them on the list, eh? And then you have Iraq to reconsider working with U.S.-led troops after the airstrikes. You understand that the Iraq is supposed to decide itself. What militia groups are going to help them? And they, they're employed. 
They employed the Iranian militia group that Trump's been blasting against international treaty and all the rest of it. Quite amazing, eh? What's going on here? But what the laws matter when you've got big, big powerful interests with big propaganda specialists ready to get it going. Another one, too, is I put the rockets land close to the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad, no known casualties and so on. I could go even further, actually, with many. This is no, no time, but even in Britain. I remember giving talks years ago in Britain. Because uh, stuff was filtering out into, the, into some of the media at the time. It was bona fide. And they, they said that Britain uh, were, was training guys who were born in Britain from some of these countries, the, the Muslim countries that are born in Britain, to go over there to be basically agents and, and, uh, and, and work for the military over there. Then they come back home and it's, oh, you got all these problems. But the fact is, we, they create, you have no idea what goes on. You have no idea. For 30 years, MI5, um, had terrorist assets in Manchester and different places, which they trained and sent them over to those countries to act as mercenaries. And then you see them on television supposedly being uh, anti-Syria or, or, or Syria, freedom for Syria, all this kind of stuff. No, no, no. These were trained mercenaries. Um, quite amazing. Yeah. And then you get blowback. They come back again and they're not too happy with you and they're, they've already tasted the blood many times and uh, it's no big deal to kill again, is it? This is, this is going to go on and on and on. You know that. And lots of folk are getting it slaughtered again. Turkish parliament backs government plan to send troops to Libya, an emergency session, it says. And in Turkey sending troops to Libya would be no solution to the chaos caused by the 2011 NATO intervention. It wasn't an intervention. They bombed Libya into the Stone Age and looted it, naturally, to and massive gold reserves for, for the population, for pension. All, all disappeared, folks. All planned that way. Same thing happened though in Iraq, you know. They even had bets on, on the, the, the very ancient artifacts in the museum in Baghdad when the military were in. The military were told to stand around and, and, and this other group moved in and stole all the stuff. That's a fact. I'm not kidding you. And they ended up in private museums. Oh, folk have no idea of the truth of things, you know. Once again, you'd never believe it because you wouldn't tell such a big lie or do such a terrible crime. A little crime maybe, you know, but but not a big one. And this stuff about uh, the the green uh, zone and so on and and around Baghdad and around the the palace and all that, old palace. That's a nonsense, folks. The U.S. had, they actually built a massive compound in there. It's like a, it was like four square miles, you know. Enough to, to house uh, armies. That's what it was, it was created for initially. And then when they handed it over eventually, after many, many failed uh, handing overs, <laughs> um, it, it's supposed to be uh, back to Iraqi ownership, basically, as uh, this, this proxy uh, head or, or heads run Iraq right now. They're all puppets, of course. And then war again on the front burner is another article here too. This is a nonsensical statement below from the Pentagon announcing the US government had committed an act of war against Iran should frighten everyone. 
The strike was aimed at deterring future Iranian attack plans, it says. Well, let's go and kill the folks and wait to see if they hit us back, eh? <laughs> because, because they haven't been successful so far. They've starved, starved them in a whole bit and they've stopped them from selling any oil. But now that they've got little deals going on behind the scenes to, that's, that uh, China might buy their oil and stuff like that, well, you, you got to stop that, folks. You can't have them feeding themselves again, eh? And Trump ordered the assassination of Soleimani and the Middle East prepares for a possible war. Really, uh, well, you'll pay for it all because we pay for it all, don't we? We, we, we pay for everything. And uh, the big crooks end up getting all for nothing. And uh, they get to loot it and they get the oil and the gas and all the rest of it, etc., etc. So I'll put all this stuff up tonight. Sorry I'm rushing through it all, but as I say, it started off with just massive psychological warfare, right down to the health, how you dress and why you dress the way you dress and all the rest of it, without knowing really where it all comes from, including the massive tattoos that became an incredible fad over the last, what, 15, 20 years. Just suddenly, but it's all from TV shows and so on, and folk, monkey see, monkey do, they say, and away they went. Uh, but, but same with pink hair and spiky hair and all the rest of it. It's all given to the folks, and they never really fathom it. They just adopt it, thinking, well, it must be normal because it exists. Pretty sad, isn't it, how we're so easily managed, especially when, when it's done so unconsciously, in a sense, by the majority of the public. We learn by osmosis. We don't really think things through. It filters through into bit by bit and, and, and bite by bite, you might say, and digital formats today. Because folk don't have to spend the time to really look into much at all. That's the sad truth of all. They get bits and bites of headlines and things, and that becomes official stories for them. And even the psychologists and, and, and manipulators at the top and the behavioral insights teams that manage us all through the Internet um, know that. They, they know that through just through headlines alone and a sequence of headlines, like a sequence of them, you'll come to a conclusion without even, even reading any the articles, just seeing headlines. No kidding. That's how intense it is. But I feel so sorry for, for people across the world going through the same stuff over and over again. And we've watched the, the total elimination of countries. That were, you could even say they were, they were not third world countries. They were up and coming and so on and demolished. And all the resources stolen from them. And Libya had, apart from the, 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 they had no debt, by the way, Libya. <laughs> Everybody was pretty wealthy in that country. Uh, totally dead. All, all their pensions, their whole, everything stolen from them. Stolen. We even know who stole it. We know all that stuff. Sad, isn't it? But that's the system we're living in, and we're going to get more years of it now. Because I, and I knew it years ago when they put Trump in. I knew exactly why he was being put in there. I knew it would take time to get it all gone. And that's how they've done it. You see, they haven't just uh, gone off half-cocked. Uh, it's been planned for ages. The resources trained up. Uh, and don't think that, they have, that they've got multi-thousands of troops over in different bases across the Middle East ready to go in. So don't think that oh, we're sending a few troops over. That's nonsense. <laughs> they've been preparing for this for years. Anyway, there we go. I hope you all have, uh, can survive what's coming up, and let's hope they don't crash the economy at the same time. I don't think they will. 
I've often thought that's the reason why they keep the U.S. economy afloat, whatever there is of economy, because it's not a manufacturing economy anymore, because a whole bunch of corporations have their bases, and America doesn't mean there's work. It might be great for the stock market, but it doesn't mean there's work for the people. It's not at all. I can remember when they used to call it a jobless recovery when Obama was in. And even before that, the same terms were used in Britain when Blair was in the jobless recovery, they called it, because corporations might make lots of money, but uh, that's in the hands of a few. And the U.S. literally has kept afloat by magicians who have magical accounting, but they'll have to get the job done with the wars before they'll eventually totally crash it. They might give you little minor crashes, but to totally crash it, you've got to get the wars done. And you think about it, the, the loot that will come out of all these countries, and already has come, going to private corporate hands and so on. Uh, but nothing goes to the taxpayer except the bill for all, because you pay for it. Sad to say, it's just repetition. Hell is repetition. Help me take along and keep going by donating. Remember, order your books and discs at cuttingthroughmedies.com. And sorry to start off the year with uh, th- this, but what can I do about it? I don't make up the news, you see, and I don't create the the bad stuff that happens in the world. So for myself, from Ontario, Canada, Alan Watt, it's good night to me. God, how your gods go with you. I'm on right now with Darren from South Africa because he and I have been talking about the idea of having some kind of a loose virtual book club and covering Carol Quigley's Tragedy and Hope this year. In 2024, we think that it will be a good project to cover sections of this each month. And so... Darren is going to start talking with me here in just a moment, but what I wanted to say is that the first Your Homework Assignment, dear listeners, is to find a copy of Tragedy and Hope by Carol Quigley. These can be found online as Kindle books. I happen to like paper, but whatever, however you get a hold of it, and we are going to cover the first approximately 106 pages and that includes the preface and then the introduction western civilization in its world setting and the second segment is western civilization to 1914 and then the russian empire to 1917 and we will cover this in january and then darren and i will make a recording together um, turn it into a video and talk about it. But hey, Darren, I'll let you jump in here. Oh, hi, Melissa. I'm very, very pleased that you've decided to do this. Um, it's something that I remember raising the first time we, we spoke. Because this book, the thing that it does is that it describes history from the viewpoint of a professor who was closely associated with what you know, you would call the system, the way the world is run by those who run it. And so you get a different perspective on political history, geopolitical history. And what's so nice about this book, I want to try and excite people and get them interested in reading it for themselves because each page is a revelation in a sense. You get so many names and references that you can follow up on your own with the Internet or you know, finding other books on 
places and times and characters and events. And just to summarize, you know, people who take an interest in what's really going on in the world are often labeled conspiracy theorists. You know, they laugh at you, ah, you're a conspiracy theorist. So you and I are going to encourage everyone to cover this material because what you'll see is that there's a thorough basis for conspiracy. It occurs. It happens all the time. It's actually the normal way of doing business on planet Earth is to conspire. So we're going to take the stigma away from the word conspiracy and um, encourage everyone to read along with us. We've discussed back and forth a variety of ways of making this inclusive. And what we will do is keep letting you know how you can become involved in, in this expedition that we're going on. But I think that we will probably be mentioning it in the Redux. It may come up from time to time in other sources, but we will have a dedicated video each month that comes out. And there may be some not sure pieces over the course of the year that are about things from Tragedy and Hope. And Darren is going to begin to write a bit as well, which I think is good. And we wanted to keep it loose, not saying that there'll be an article every month, but whatever we feel compelled or inspired to do. And then we will be mentioning this on Telegram and Twitter. And I also have an email address that I'm going to give to you right now, which is cutting through the matrix at protonmail.com. And this is a different address than the everyday uh, email correspondence, but cutting through the matrix at protonmail.com because we envisioned that this would be an, an opportunity for you to connect with Darren and me and ask questions about the book or make comments. And if any of you reading along feel at some point, oh, I'd like to be involved in the conversation, we can arrange to have a, a little 10 or 15 or 20 minute chat with you where you get to raise some of the, just you get to say what has popped out at you in your reading and you get included in the conversation and I think this is a way of making a virtual book club come to life, so to speak, be something that as many of you as want to be involved can be involved. I concur. Uh, that's a, a great idea, Melissa. Um, everyone has their own history of understanding their, their reading, what they've learned in life, what they've seen in the world on TV, everyone has a concept of what the past was through their own unique angle. And so everyone can read this book, Tragedy and Hope, and it's going to ring different bells at different times for each person. So if you've got a unique viewpoint on part of the book that we're covering, it would be great to hear your point of view. 
That's right. I, I think, uh, you know, when we were discussing the way that a book club worked, I, I have done these before in my life, and generally you're assigned a chapter or a section of the book, and you know, however many of you get together, whether it's half a dozen or two dozen, uh, and you sit around a table and you discuss what you've read, and there might be a moderator, usually is, and you can you know, the moderator will ask if you have questions and so forth. But to do this virtually means that as involved as you can be, the more this comes to life and the more we can have a real exchange of ideas and reactions. So I think that that's a good thing. Now, when I, when Darren and I were talking about this, he told me what book club meant for men in South Africa. Do you want to share that? <laughs> I I think this could be universal. Um, <laughs> but if guys arrange a book club, um, very little reading takes place. Rather, uh, bottles of beer are drunk and jokes told and fun had. <laughs> so um, I think the ladies are, are a lot more serious about book club than men. <laughs> Well, but I, I'm not quite sure. It's, it's, it's a secret thing. The, only the ladies will really know what happens at book club. <laughs> I've never been to a ladies' book club. I've been to the the mixing of both men and women to discuss a book. And it's a fun way to get into something because the main thing is mm. it keeps you committed to, yeah. you know, I've, I've, we said we're going to read this, we're going to read it in X amount of time, and we want to show up and we want to have done our homework. Yeah. Um, teaching someone else or trying to offer an explanation to someone else of what you've read is the best way to learn it yourself and to really understand it better. And every single time you read a book, you pick up a bit more on that book that you read before. I don't know where I read this, but they say that when, if you read a book from cover to cover, you generally will remember about 20% of that book. And the second time you read it, which I've, I've done with a few books, you know, the second and third time is always something new again. And something else really sinks in. You know, the first time you didn't quite get something, but you thought you were following. And the second reading really um, opens up new avenues. So, I'm excited to do this with you and to learn as well as to offer my thoughts on it. Well, that sounds great. So so that you've got your assignment. You know what you need to have read by the end of this month. And we'll gotcha. keep it going for the rest of the year. And we thank mm. you. We're excited to do this. And we hope that we'll get lots of feedback from readers and listeners. And it, this will be a beneficial I, thing. I hope so, Melissa, because I've just done a cursory, you know, as we were chatting a moment ago, if you type in Carol quickly and you use the search engines, there are people out there who don't seem to be genuinely, you get the sense that when you read material that features Carol Quigley's work, it, it sounds a little bit snide, like they're trying to take the shine off of his work and they sort of trying to give you the idea that he is a conspiracy guy, you know, and this is where all the conspiracy nutcases are drawing their material from. And 
they do it in a way that starts off, it seems complimentary to Carol Quigley, and then they start getting into the material that they then sort of lead you off a bit. It's sort of, oh, well, this is conspiracy stuff. That's what I'm picking up from some of the Internet sites. They're not all like that. But I think that as more and more people hear about this book and take an interest in it, I think the book has such weight behind it that, well, they, in air quotes, don't want people reading this book. So That's a good point. One thing that I said to you this morning before we hit the record button is that I, I believe that Alan Watt mentioned tragedy and hope and Carol Quigley no less than a thousand times, thousands. I mean, just every mm. single talk that he gave, it would be mentioned. Well, maybe not every single one, but he, he mentioned him so often and the importance of this book. But he did not cover it in depth. He only, to my recollection, read from the book itself just a handful of times. And when I was thinking about this yesterday, I thought, well, Alan gave us a homework assignment. He said, Mm. this is an important book and you should read it and you should know what is in this book. And I think that, you know, I don't want to malign anyone out there who has mentioned the book or talked about it. I know what Darren is saying is true, that there is this kind of, uh, you know, wanting to paint Quigley with the conspiratorial brush and telling you this is what the book is about. Don't bother reading it for yourselves. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm the expert, so I'm going to tell you what's in this book and then you can just not have to read Mm. it. Yeah, that's definitely that. But I, I think that in that, that, you know, we've got Alan. He said, read the book. And so what Darren and I are doing is, you know, I've read the book before and Darren has read the book before. And now Darren and I are going to read it together. And hopefully with many, many of you, because we're doing the homework assignment that Alan gave us. We're reading it for ourselves and we're thinking about it, discussing it with you. And I think this is so much better than us saying, here's a summary of Tragedy and Hope. Don't bother reading 1,300 pages. It's just too much for you. I don't think it is. Not at all. This book was, when was this book written, Melissa? 1966. Can you? 1966. Mm Mm-hmm. This book reads like it could have been written yesterday. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 it's so contemporary that from where Carol quickly leaves off, you can, if you've been keeping up to date with world events for the last 30 years or 40 years, you can see how everything he's mentioned and, and the people that he references and the groups that he references have just flowed into where you know you are now. All that's really changed are the names of organizations. They've switched and changed names or they've grown extensions. But mm-hmm. essentially what you read in Tragedy and Hope applies today even more so. That's right. And I tell you another thing, too, about this book, two things. The first from Alan who said, if you want to know 20th century history, 
then you must read Tragedy and Hope. Now, you could say, well, oh no, it's only the early to the mid-20th century. But Quigley himself in the preface said, Although I project the interpretation into the near future on a number of occasions, the historical narrative ceases in 1964, not because the date of writing caught up with the march of historical events, but because the period 1962 to 1964 seems to me to mark the end of an era of historical development and a period of pause before a quite different era with quite different problems begins. And mm. he goes on to, you know, elaborate on his thinking there, but I would agree with him uh, that that the early 60s did absolutely mark, you know, you've got the uh, whole new process of receiving information, the sexual revolution, mm. the change in music, et cetera, et cetera, and it... It was a wild period, but what Darren just said, if you've got that basis, then you can carry it into the future, and we're not that far removed from the 20th century, and everything that we're living through now, the agenda, Quigley has given you the historical foundation for that. Something that I had fun with, Melissa, just my my private uh, interest to myself when I've read uh, this book and the Anglo-American establishment is that Carol quickly name drops. He takes you through so many historical figures and if you go onto the internet, you can start tracing these families and to see who their, who many of their relatives are today and what their cousins, brothers, sisters, aunts, grandchildren, you name it, what they are doing now and you can see how they are still involved with the modern equivalence of many of these organizations that quickly referred to in the past, you can see how they intergenerationally arrange things for themselves as well. Um, because if you take a look at all the current crop of people around the world running the show, although they are people that are, you know, they're not relatives, but you'll pick a lot of that up so you can have fun with Wikipedia and the internet in looking up individuals and following the the family tree as it were and it's fascinating it's really really fascinating to see how the people have branched out and what their children are doing yeah very interesting so you can see that we are excited to do this we hope that you'll be excited to pick up a copy of carol quigley's tragedy and hope and the rest of the title is a history of the world in our time so Tragedy and Hope, A History of the World in Our Time by Carol Quigley. And we look forward to doing this with you. And we'll be back with our first segment to discuss at the end of this month or at the very, very first of February, depending on, you know, everything. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you. Let's, uh, let's see how it goes. Great.